Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. Welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts. Uh, this is a bit of an impromptu Friday afternoon conversation with uh, Brandon Sparks. Sparksy, how you doing? Oh, I'm living the dream, man. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, last semester of law school for my uh, master's in sports law oh, nice. starts uh, in two weeks, so, so good. Um, yeah. uh, just to let everyone know, this is this one's been in the works for a while. It was going to be <laughs> sort of about something else, but uh, this actually is kind of cool, considering you are now the director of rugby operations for uh, for the Utah Warriors, um, which was you know not the case six months ago when we were first talking about putting this together. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but uh, I have been to your hometown, um, Traverse city, Michigan. Uh, so uh, we, we are apparently cherry Republic. Uh, folks subscription members. To, subscription <laughs> members. If, if anyone is like for the people that are listening, if you haven't been to Traverse city or if you like cherry stuff, look up cherry Republic.com and the, the um, you will be in the the cult uh, <laughs> very short, very shortly. Uh, but uh, so so, did you get any chocolate covered cherries at Christmas time? Uh, I did not, but we did get our in laws. Uh, I, I put somebody's kid through college at Cherry Republic <laughs> for in law gifts. So yeah, <laughs> they, they still got my money, even if it wasn't just for me. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm going back. This summer again, same same race. Yeah, I guess this is the the year full of dirt drinking game. Every time I talk about triathlon, you have to take a shot. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going back this summer. So if you want to like hang out like the last week of August in Traverse City, let's you know see your parents do all that do yeah. all that fun stuff. Yeah, um, I some good spots for you too. There's a hop lot out in Sutton's Bay. Is I went by a good friend of mine from my past and. Uh, Naughty Cat. Have you done the Naughty Cat? Yet? Naughty Cat, no. Oh. All right. So Naughty Cat is a it's a giant catamaran sailboat. That sounds um, perfect. Yeah, and it's owned by uh, my brother's best friend who was in his wedding, and like a kid that I used to babysit when we were all kids, and now he's Captain Shane. So if you get you want to really Naughty have a good Cat. time, go all Naughty right. Cat and say Captain Shane, and, and Brandon right. Sparks sent you. All right. Um, so, but, uh, you know, Friday afternoon conversation. So let's, as I like to do, it's all about telling your rugby stories. So, uh, you know, what other sports did you play growing up, man? Um, it was really football. Uh, I, I was not gifted with the, uh, mechanical gene that my brother and my father, and even to a certain degree, my mother had, um, my, my father was a professional flat track motorcycle racer. Uh, and my, my brother had the talent to do the same thing. Um, like for me, uh, you know, if you were to lift the hood of a car, I could definitely tell you where the engine was at. And it was pretty much, it was pretty much in there. Um, so I was really into team sports. Football was my primary, um, you know, football was my first love and it's something that I love to do. Uh, I actually wanted to be a football coach and that's what I went to school to do is become a teacher so I could become a coach. And like I was singularly focused on becoming a, a football coach. Um, and then my senior, I had always kind of dabbled in rugby, like through my younger years. I'd seen it. I heard about it. 
um, dating myself. You know, you used to download the LimeWire, Jonah Lamu highlights. Right. You, you need to stop because <laughs> you did play with some decent talent in high school. You, yeah. Phil, Phil Teal. Yeah. Phil Teal. Yeah. So. yeah. He's a local, he was a local hero. Um, you know, and he was, he was awesome just as a person and like talent wise. It's even crazy now in Utah to be like Angus, Angus here is from Traverse city and played on the same high school team that I helped found and was the captain of my senior year. So to think like there's three people that made it out of Traverse city, two, two extremely talented players. uh, And then one moderately okay athlete and a decent administrator that, that made it out of there. Moderately okay. <laughs> that's a that's yeah. a bit uh that's a that's a low bar, man. You might wanna uh I guess we gotta we gotta like you know make a few more steps before we can say highly successful administrator, right? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I mean it's it, I mean it's it's success is success in this too, like this being rugby is is so uh I guess success in rugby in American rugby specifically is such a sliding scale that, you know, I definitely have way more losses. Uh, I've definitely had way more losses than successes, but I've never wasted a failure, which, you know, that's why I was kind of like, Oh, like I'm, I'm okay at what I do because I failed a ton more than I've been successful, but I've used those failures to kind of like, build off of it so i guess if we're looking at a win-loss record keeping it coach-esque uh i'm a below 500 i'm a below 500 uh, administrator right now <laughs> that's i mean that's, that's not it's not horrible right I mean, no. Uh, no if you can if you can hold down a job uh as a collegiate coach <laughs> for a while yeah for multiple teams now mm-hmm. um, that's not it's not too bad. No, it's not. It's not. And I recognize that. But like at the same time, you know, a lot of credit needs to be given to like the players that I've worked with, the administrators that I've worked with that like have have allowed allowed a lot of development and risk taking that that maybe wouldn't they wouldn't be accustomed to. But you know, the fact that I was able to come up with a plan and sit down and give them a plan, I think always helped out. So you know, uh we talked a little bit about high school rugby. And so if you look back at now where, I mean, even now Angus is not now a pro and an Eagle, but where mm-hmm. is like, I guess, Michigan high school rugby now versus where it was, you know, in the last, you know, Ooh, I mean, the, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I want to preface this with that. I'm not trying to sound, I'm trying not, I'm not going to be negative. It's going to sound negative, but I'm not going to be negative. And I'll explain why. Um, when I was like, I am a product of high school rugby in America and a high school rugby in Michigan, same with Angus, same with Phil, all of them. Um, but where it was when I left high school and where it is now, there hasn't been a lot of growth there uh, where, you know, right off the bat, you know, that headline, it sounds bad. Like it sounds like, oh, you know, nobody there is doing anything or cares. But I think it's important to understand that the, uh, you know, the economic downturn that we took here as a country hit Michigan, especially hard with the auto industry, which made the growth, even the cereal industry in Battle Creek, 
uh, you know, all of that really affected it and it hurt the growth of high school rugby in Michigan. Um, but there are now uh, several people there that are extremely passionate about growing the game. Uh, you know, like Andy Dowser, who's an extremely talented, extremely passionate leader there. My center he's doing it uh benny mataleona who was is one of my best friends uh he's doing something great with detroit catholic central uh rugby so yeah there's it's starting definitely get an upswing um especially i think now that more men and women high school athletes realize that there's a future in rugby collegiately where that wasn't the case when i was when i was there so you know, you as an individual uh, playing through college, uh, you you played a bunch of places. Uh, you got to England. What club? What club did you play with in England? Uh, I played with I played with um, Oxen down there in Hythe. It's in the Kent County, um, right next to Hythe. Uh, I. <laughs> Long before YouTube existed, um, a friend of mine helped me build a website. We put up game film, and I would just email five clubs a week. Is trying to get overseas, and this one team um, offered me a sponsorship, which I have to say because you know back then it was a little bit easier to get money and not and circumnavigate visas. Um, so I apologize if I've admitted guilt to anything on on here, but. Yeah, I went over there and I played, and I really, really lucked out by ending up going there. Um, John Kitson, who who became like a grandfather to me, um, took really good care of me and opened a lot of doors for me around developing as a coach. Uh, that's where I first realized that like I really, really wanted to buy into being a rugby coach. And John really accommodated that. And I got to talk to people in the RFU. I've got to talk to people that were associated with their World Cup winning team uh, in 03. And he just allowed me to ask tons and tons of questions and even probably to the point of annoyance. Uh, you know, and then the coaching staff that was there, um, Gucky and Lee Jeffries, who became a really good friend and still is a coaching mentor to me. Every time I'm over there, I sit down and talk to him. And he's really helped develop me, and they really, really empowered me to become what I am and where I'm trying to go as a rugby professional, uh, which, you know, I think, I think that really – inspires me and how I want to be as a rugby leader um, simply because like what, what you just heard me talk about there wasn't, there wasn't a single thing mentioned about playing. Uh, you know, I played at a decent level at that time. And while I enjoyed my playing time, what they provided for me and gave me the opportunity to become and learn uh, is what I want to do, be able to do for players at any level that I'm at. So, so yeah, I owe a lot to, to folks in the rugby club over there and, and I hope to one day be able to repay them any way that I can. So we're gonna we're gonna jump forward a bit and focus really on your coaching career. You mentioned you know you originally were going to school, you wanted to become a teacher and eventually a football coach, but you became a rugby coach. So I'm guessing based on that answer just previously uh, that your time in England is what focused you to becoming a rugby coach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I came back and I, I came back and I went back to Michigan for, I think 48 hours, saw my dad, saw my brother, um, packed up my, my crappy Mercury Mystique 
uh, and drove out to Boston and ended up at Mystic River. Uh, played at Mystic River. Uh, Brett Willis, Cream of Fifi. I was coached by Josh Smith. Played with Cream of Fifi, the New England Free Jacks uh, staff. Um, Brett Willis, who was a huge uh, stakeholder in the game out there in Boston helped facilitate me getting out there. And I played there until I got hurt, which kind of forced the early retirement. And I knew what rugby had done for a, a poor kid from Traverse city, Michigan, that really didn't have a, a lot of options. Um, then, and I want to be able to provide that for, for the people, which led me to apply for the uh, MIT, women's head coaching position um which they told me uh, they wouldn't give it to me and when i asked for a clarification about why why i wouldn't be hired in that position they um told me i was overqualified so i ended up having to beg for my first head coaching position and um overqualified i was overqualified yeah and i begged i begged for it and by that time they were not a very they were they were an underperforming team and Two years later, we ended up winning the Nescro National Championship, uh, and and that was that for me. Like the national championship was awesome; it was a great experience. But my favorite memory from MIT was uh, we were driving home. We we're driving home, and me and and Tegan Dow, who was the assistant coach, were in the front seat, and we had a couple players in the back. And one of the players was talking to her parents on her cell phone, and she's like, "Yeah, um, Dad, I want a medal today." And uh, you know, Dad clearly had to say something along the lines of, "Oh, what subject?" And and the player was like, "Oh, no, it wasn't. In a, it wasn't for school. It was actually for rugby. We're a national championship rugby team." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's so cool!" Because twelve of the fifteen starting players on that team never even played a sport until they got to college. Yes. So like to be able to do something like that and like empower people through the game of rugby, I was like, Oh, I'm hooked. Like I loved, I love that feeling. Uh, and like, you know, I've had, I've had successes at a lot of different places, but like it's never been the end result that I've enjoyed the most. It's been that process of getting to that end result. Like it's almost, it's a weird feeling when you talk about it is like when you, when you get to that and you get to that, that crown jewel of whatever it is, whether it be a championship, a selection, whatever, I was almost always, I was sad. I was sad when we got there because it wasn't what I enjoyed. I enjoyed that process. And like that, that moment of time when you achieve that kind of, that, that kind of success, you know, it, it doesn't, it's never going to happen again. It, it's going to change. The team's going to change. You're going to change. Everything changes. So like, you just kind of wish that you could bottle. I wish that I could bottle that that process and that experience leading up to that event, or that that success, and and keep that because that's always been my favorite part. So then we were we're gonna go across the country from from Massachusetts to Berkeley. Yeah, with the All Blues. You you were with the All Blues, and you're also with uh, UC Berkeley as well. Uh, you know how did like that mesh? Uh, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. I learned a lot out there. Um, that's kind of where I ended up out there for the business I was working with. I, I led up their West Coast expansion, um, which, you know, that experience really helped me develop, really helped me develop um, as a coach, uh, which, you know, like the Berkeley things like working with Kathy Flores, working with Laura Cabrera, um, you know, those were massive those are massive cornerstones in my coach development and, and, and what I learned and, and like how to coach. Um, 
you know, I credit Laurel with a lot of like, helping shape a, a, a young coach into an experienced coach and same with Kathy. So yeah, like that experience in California was really good. And I think that combination of coaching experience along with that business experience really kind of helped mesh who I was and what I could be. And, and you know, and then when Matt Trinari called me and asked me if I would like his job at Michigan, um, I saw that as like a, a, a moment that I had to decide, like, did I want to stay in business and keep trying to grow companies and, and doing that kind of things? Or, or did I really want to commit to, to rugby and try to get it done uh, professionally? And then that's the moment where I was like, okay, like I've got to go to Michigan. This is what I've got to do. If I really, really want to, to do rugby as, as a full-time thing. So, so the year before you end up taking the full-time role at Michigan um, with the All Blues. Uh, when it's, you know, you guys won the Club Sevens Championship in the summer of 13. We talk about process. Wow. We talk about not, you know, being worried about, you know, the end result. But, I mean, you, I mean, you win, you know, a championship with uh, an Enscrow team back in, I guess, what was it, 08, 07? Yeah. yeah. And then you sort of do that again in, in a senior setting, uh, in, you know, what is basically the coin flip of all sports when, you know, uh, sevens is very much a coin flip for me because something can go wrong and oh, yeah. you can have a sideways score very fast. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that, it, it'd be really, it would be really uh, easy to like be like, oh yeah, we, 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 um, we did this as coaches and everything and, and, you know, credit needs to be given to Kathy and Laura, they were the head coaches. And I, again, like me sitting there and learning from them, but also them giving me the freedom to have a lot of input and do a lot of different things really helped. Um, but again, like ultimately like with that process, you, the credit has to be given to those players. I remember, I remember pulling up one day to the sevens pitch and I saw Kelly Griffin out there working, like working out, I think that was the first time I think that was the first time that I had my realization of what an elite athlete was and what what somebody at that next level was going to look like um you know not not necessarily physically but but what their mental makeup was look like and what their training habits would look like um you know what was great there was you had a lot of Kelly Griffins with that team in in, and then with that talent, like that athletic talent that you had and that commitment to be better, you had players uh, like like Ruth and Jazzy who who were so smart, like so intelligent with the rugby IQ. Uh, I remember that that championship game winning. We had talked, we had put in a play that was, we had put in a series of, of movements that would align, align Ruth to set herself up for a drop goal and in that WPL final Ruth called it herself and put herself in a position hit the drop goal and that was like one of the that was the turning point of the game that allowed us to win it and and again like that process of like like helping educate those players but then also like making sure that we weren't wasting their work ethic and their buy-in uh went a long way to again like just just that experience it was such an awesome experience so move on to Michigan, uh, summer of 2014. Uh, and that was five years. 
so you talked about, uh, you know, how Matt Trinarian called you and asked you if you wanted to take the, take the role at Michigan. Um, go green, actually. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so you, you talked about the, the internal debate with yourself, uh, staying in business or taking on, uh, a rugby coaching role professionally full-time where you definitely would have had to do other things to make sure, you know, it facilitated life. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're uh, yeah. Like, the, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. Are you going to, are you going to show this video too? Oh, it's, it's totally on right now. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it, is that part of the, Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So there it is. Yeah. He's been cooped up in the apartment all day, but uh, yeah, the, um, the Michigan and like making that choice. That was your question, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, at that point, my wife and I, my wife and I were engaged to be married. So it wasn't just like a, my me decision alone. I had to go to her. Um, thankfully, thankfully she was able to get a good job, uh, there as well. So why I took a, a pay cut to go into coaching professionally, um, you know, she really helped support me through this and that wouldn't have nothing, none of this would have been possible without her support with it. Uh, but yeah, like that, that, that decision was a really scary decision. Um, and it was a decision that like, I still look back on and I go, man, like what if I would have stayed in, in business with business and what would have happened? But, but yeah, and I'm really thankful I did. I learned a lot at Michigan. I really did. I really did learn a lot of Michigan and I learned a lot at, um, you know, I learned a lot just through that whole process of making that decision. So uh, this is a question I, I always ask uh, people that coach both men and women. Is there a difference? <laughs> what is, I, I, it's always something to be asked because there, I think there, there can be a difference. And sometimes I think I, I would say that women are probably easier to coach than men. And not because men are harder, just men are we're, we're kind of stupid sometimes. Oh yeah, I mean, as a as as a fellow man, I would agree with you. Uh, my decision making tree is very uh, slim, very straight line, <laughs> yes, no, and it's usually not a whole lot of thinking in between there. Uh, but as far as like the difference goes, I don't <sighs> ambition wise, I don't see a big difference. Um, I think. I think like one thing that I do see with men is you have a lot of instant experts uh, where, oh, cool coach, I watched this YouTube video and I've watched the game. So like I, I now know rugby. I get it. Uh, you know, where especially with, especially with like football crossover athletes, it tends to be more defensively. Like if it's a skill position, it doesn't necessarily happen as much. But like you almost have to like learn, you have to teach them how to like get out of the red. Like, guys, let's just calm down. Like, you have to think here more and less play with aggression and emotion. Like, this is not a this – isn't, this isn't a game where you can just go hard for three seconds and be violent and then you'll be successful. Like, you have to think through this. So you're going to – you're going to hurt your team more than you're going to help them. Um, you know, and then on the flip side, like, with the difference there is, like, what I, I – I loved coaching women's rugby because – 
because of how analytical it was. And like, they always wanted to know the why. And so long as you coached the why in a very clear fashion, they were going to do it uh, better than, better than usually better than I coached it. Um, which like I, that, that was always my, the big, the, the only real big contrast that I saw there was, was, you know, women athletes were always easier to teach how to think about rugby than men athletes were. Like a lot of times you had to, you know, with male athletes, you had to be like, listen, guys, stop, calm down, take a deep breath, let's try it again. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was really, really the only two big, big differences. Um, you know, as far as like if you wanted us to keep it as, keep it as like, black and white as men and women like individually there's always little things um you know like the one thing that i've always noticed is like women's players that were were, were bigger like had like physical gifts like they were just big i we always noticed that it tended to take a little bit more time it tended to took a little more, more time to teach them how to be aggressive and handle contact and you know again this is 100 percent bro science i don't know if there's any truth in this but the one thing that we i would always ask was like hey you know when you were a kid and you played with your sisters with just with your siblings or on recess were you often told like you know you need to be gentle because because you're physically better than other people and more often than not that answer was yes and, and i I think like individually there were certain players like that, that we had to kind of be like, no, 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 we want you. Like, we want you to be the playground bully here. We want you to be those types of players. Um, you know, and even on the flip side, like with the, with the male athlete, uh, you know, you, you sometimes had, especially like coaching at a place like the university of Michigan um, or even at legacy to a certain degree, these smaller athletes just thought of themselves as small people. Therefore they wouldn't be any good at being a rugby player where, you know, with and the male side, you had to be like, no, man, like, even if you're only 120 pounds and 5'4", like, you could still be a really good wing if you're fast. You can be a really good scrum half if, you're, if you've got great leadership skills and you want to develop a pass. So, yeah, I think that, like, individually, those, those were those were some of the, the challenges that we I found that I had to have uh, a lot um, between the two, between the two of them. So while you were at Michigan, you also worked for Adidas in several coaching roles. Main one was as All American Sevens for women. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you like? How do you get there? Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, it was again like somebody that I owe a lot to as far as the career development was was Pete Steinberg. Uh, he gave me that opportunity um, to step in there and, and do it. It, it was, I don't know if it's necessarily, I don't know if it was something that they'd always wanted to do, but I don't know if it was always in the plan to do it, uh, where Pete was the first one that really committed to it um, and gave me that opportunity. And I remember the first event, I think the first event was Philadelphia. We went out there. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Philadelphia. It was Philadelphia. And the first event I, I picked like an awesome squad, like, who's who from all over, like Amy, Amy neighbor from Arizona. There was, uh, you know, there's Amy neighbor from Arizona. There was, uh, Megan Pinson. I think she was at central Washington at that point. Um, just a who's who of like athletes. It was an awesome team. We went out there, we won the tournament. Uh, it was, you know, a really cool experience. And, and then, and then like the next year, the next year we selected, a. 
we selected a really unknown side. I, I remember that. I remember that sitting in the film room. Uh, we were in Colorado. We're sitting in the film room, and ten of the twelve players had never ever watched film on themselves before. To give you an idea about what kind of players that we were selecting, and we ended up finishing second, and we lost to Scion in that tournament. Um, which, you know, like that opportunity the first year to be able to prove myself that Pete gave me, I think gave me a little bit of a longer leash with that really, really uh, young and inexperienced side uh, that, that, you know, ended up actually producing some pretty good players that, that showed up on like Elena Olson was a part of that team. She was a part of the first year, but played a really, a really small role. And the second year she had a much bigger role. Uh, and like KV Slaughter was on that team. Kelsey Stockert was on that team. There was a bunch of players that really hadn't necessarily had their shot at that point that ended up getting into there and, and did really well. And it was awesome. Um, so yeah, I think like the opportunity from Pete who, who, you know, saw that I could do it and he gave me that opportunity to let me, to let me, to let me see if, to let me see if I could. Um, so yeah, that's, I think it was a little bit of luck and a little bit of being in the right time at the right position and, and also just making sure I was prepared to handle that. Dogs. Hey, you know, taking your dog to interview day, it's a great time. Wow. Right. I know it's yeah. But uh, so we've looked at, I mean, you and I have had some discussions offline about pay to play and age grade. How, where would you think the women's age grade program would be if there wasn't that support from Atavis uh, at that point? Um, I think, I think at that point it was huge um, because I, I, I don't necessarily – I don't really know, to be honest with you, because I don't, I didn't, I didn't know the ins and outs at that point about what the effect that they had on it. It wasn't until years later that I learned, um, you know, what, what role Atavis had in it, uh, which I think that that's what led to a lot of successes that you saw at the World Cups, both in sevens and fifteens, um, was, was the, the giving of Atavis and the experience of Atavis and, and Emily Bidewell and, and the apprentices and all of them. So, yeah, I think they were a crucial, a crucial uh, role in all of it. So different question, given that age grade in general still is pay to play at even up to the U23 level when we run the collegiate all Americans out there somewhat, how much is that hurting um, those squads? The pay-to-play model? Yeah. Um, man, you really you're trying to get me with this one. <laughs> well, I, I just want – it's either – it's kind of a yes or a no, but it also – you also have a unique perspective from coaching in that system. Yeah. In – you know, I think – I think history – history allows – history allows you to always look through rose tinted glasses um, being inside of that pay to play model, but also us being successful inside of that pay play, that pay to play model. I, I'm like, I'm working through the memory banks in my head right now to be like, man, what, what challenges did we have? And I do remember players like declining it because they couldn't afford it. Uh, you know, but I, I, I still believe that you rugby is the most affordable sport to play, even at that level. 
like even at that that international age grade level because like if you do look at like travel baseball teams there's parents that are spending fifty thousand dollars a year like that yeah it, yeah i talked to some people around here and it, it's what what parents are spending a month for their pay to for their travel baseball team not even just the little league team that their kids yeah. on um but yeah. the extra just the yeah. extra and it boggles my mind. Um, so I, I do agree with you somewhat that uh, yeah. um, rugby remains way more affordable than a lot of those other sports. But but to give but to give you the the, the answer is is like, I do believe that the model needs to be flipped. Where the higher up you go, the less it should cost you. Um, but I don't have a plan for that. Um, unfortunately, I do I do believe that there I believe that there maybe should be things done administratively that allow for uh you know different tiers of sponsorship um like if you look at the rfu and again this is this is bro business this is bro business scholar uh scholastics here so i'm not saying that i'm an expert at this or anything you know but if you were to look at it like if you were to look at say uh the rfu like you see that the age grade is sponsored by mitsubishi where the the senior sides are not uh so like I do believe that there's opportunities out there for to become more affordable for players um, because, you know, truth be told, we're missing, we're missing a ton of athletes, a ton of athletes that can't afford to be in that system. And, and you're seeing that, like you're seeing that across the board, even football, like working with legacy and working with the legacy football group there, you know, he often spoke about that, about how can we, we have to keep this affordable because he could see that his, his own model was growing and growing and growing as far as expenses to players go, which you're always going to price out a certain level of talent that, that are in, in areas that you're not going to reach if you're going to be charging $4,000 to take a team somewhere. Um, so, so yeah, I think like that's always going to be the big challenge, but, but at the same time, I don't know if there's necessarily an easy answer right off the bat. I think there's a lot of things that need to get fixed even from the bottom up even from the bottom up uh, to make it work. Um, you know, and, and again, use bro business, bro business is like, there seems to be such a focus on high performance when maybe it doesn't need to be a focus on high performance at the, at the state-based organization. Maybe it's more of a sense of purpose around inclusion where, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll run these camps, but we don't need to play in high performance competitions we need to play, you know, an East versus West in the state game and get parents that are maybe interested in the sport that, you know, eventually become donors or you create a great experience for a kid that eventually becomes a donor in 10 to 15 years. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that there just, just needs to be a different, a different shift in mentality at the grassroots and collegiate level um, with high – performance and inclusion but also making sure that we find like that 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 middle ground where the two can work together to support each other yep big time uh, and it's kind of funny we we talk about pay to play and uh all these other things but at the same time you develop develop something that was a little bit different and got started off and has been handed off um, to mm. someone else uh, now that you are at Utah, but you in 2016, you started the foundation of legacy rugby Academy. And we we've talked a little bit about rugby life labs on the phone, 
Um, but what are all the things that led you in that direction? Uh, so the big thing, the biggest thing about legacy and the one thing that I think people get confused about is everybody thought it was about winning. Like, oh, legacy is they're like supposed to win or they're supposed to be like a premier side. They're supposed to be, you know, HP, HP, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't start it to be the best. Like, and if you don't believe me, go and look at the Midwest tables. We weren't, we were, our women's side was always really good. Um, but I also think the talent pool in the Midwest allowed for us to be really good. Uh, where like our men's side, like if you were looking at it, strictly in a performance base, a win-loss record, you would think that we weren't very good. And we weren't. Like, that's the truth. It's like we weren't if you're looking at it only from a win-loss record uh, perspective. But I I felt that there needed to be a tool somewhere that would allow athletes to come in and develop without the pressure of winning. And we always used to call it, Benny and I, who started it, we would always call it like um, developmental performance. Like that was our, that was our phrase. It's developmental performance. We're never going to, we're never going to sacrifice development for the sake of performance. We're always going to work to develop the players. And our end goal was to take these players on, whether it be in a, in a training camp, whether it be in a skills camp, whether it be in our sevens program, our college expos or whatever. And it was to help develop the skill set to then give them back to the clubs. So the clubs would be successful and more people would want to come work with us to be better. We were, we worked really hard to try to be neutral. Um, you know, there's a lot of times that players would be like, oh, you need to start a 15s team here. I'd come out here and play and I'd, and we'd kibosh it. Be like, we don't want to start a 15s team. We don't want to start a serious team that that would steal talent from the, t- the same teams that we were trying to support. Uh, you know, we did that a lot with coaches. There's a, like uh, the Detroit women's head coach now, Jason Anthony. You know, he was one of our very first coaches that we put into our developmental pathway um, without the pressure of winning that allowed him to learn the craft of coaching. Uh, you know, and, and again, it was just about being a resource to the community. Like the College Expo was something I was extremely proud of, uh, which I will 100 percent admit here that i stole from our football organization where we would hold a we would hold a camp and we would bring in college coaches uh put them up in a hotel room and then let local talent essentially like audition for college coaches we had like justin hickey tui osborne Roz from life these coaches would come in work with the athletes get to look at these athletes and, and recruit from them and, we, and that was extremely successful because there was kids coming out of the university or from michigan and surrounding midwest states that probably weren't going to get the opportunity to be seen otherwise and again we worked to keep those things extremely affordable because we didn't want to price kids out um there i'll tell you this is the first time i've admitted this uh in public but People are like, oh, you know, he's in it for the money. He's in it to make money. He's in it to make money. But, you know, the, the truth is, is that I never, I never collected uh, a single paycheck from Legacy Rugby Academy. Uh, it, if anything, I'm definitely deep into the red with <laughs> with the the things that I did for for Legacy Rugby Academy. Um, you know, there was a kids, there was kids out of the school in inner city Detroit that I paid for with myself to come to those college academy or those college expos to be seen um you know because again like i felt like those kids had they needed an opportunity to be seen and 
in experience what I experienced with the game of rugby and like how it helped me develop as a person and as a professional. And yeah, that was really the focus of, of legacy. And you know what the funny thing was about that whole thing was we actually started to produce high performance talent in an environment that was strictly not about producing high performance talent. We saw a lot of kids go on to college that became really good players in college. Um, you know, there's kids, Elena Olson, who's at the USA at the OTC. Now you got Mark Phillips who made the world cup with the Jamaica seven side, like all those guys started to come out. And there's guys now that are on MLR rosters that came through that exact same environment that was about development and not about high performance. So so yeah, that was really the reason, the end goal, the process, and everything that went in with with Legacy Rugby Academy. That 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 was you know an interesting tidbit. How you said you know people say he's he's in it for the money, and I wouldn't say that I was in the same f- viewpoint because I didn't know you yeah. uh, a couple years ago. Uh, yeah. But I just I just saw Legacy Rugby Academy, and a couple years ago, if I looked at I I wouldn't say. You know, what is it? Someone was, I remember listening to somebody else and it was recently and they were talking about pay to play and era. And I felt that it was basically a talk, uh, an attack on era. And I think about it in, in our space, in where rugby is right now for age grade and for development. And the reality is, is that um, those coaches do a hell of a lot for those athletes at a decent price, like what the price point is. I was thinking um, what the, the era camp here uh, that was in Casa Grande uh, led by Salty Thompson. It was, I think it was five days, maybe it was four and a half days and like food lodging and camp was 720 bucks. And I was like, how are you like, how can you say that's not affordable? Because I know what, like you, so you coach with Nike sports camps. Mm-hmm. Does anyone want to look at the cost of different like versions of Nike sports camps? Um, I don't know what the rugby ones are right now, but like the golf ones, if they're oh, resident, yeah. the resident for five days, you go to like Yale or Harvard, cause that's where these places are. You're talking two, three grand for a week. Yeah. And so to go, so for what you was doing and what other organizations are doing in general, it's not that expensive. And I think that attack is the, is the model, is that model, um, whether it was legacy or era, is that bad for rugby? Well, you know, those players are getting developed and they're having a good time and, you know, they're getting to go places and they're being better. They're becoming better athletes. Is that not the purpose of those programs? Then that's it. But I, I also think that it's, I think it's also at a mindset. I think it, where it really goes wrong or where the, where the real rub is, is the mindset of us as a community, uh, as a whole. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very unique rugby thing where people want caviar at a sardine price, you know, and <laughs> like, it is very, it is very true. Right. Like, you know, if put like just just for the and this is 
uh, and this is something I can speak from my own personal experience um, of working across all these different companies is you would watch a kid that you knew was a decent football player. And I'm not saying good football player. I'm saying decent, like D2, D3, maybe we'll see the field when he's a senior or junior, decent football player. And you'd watch that family pour 20, 30, 40, 50, 70, whatever it is into that kid's football future. But the instant that you would ask or or price would be set at like three, four, five, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars, whatever you want, a thousand dollars, whatever. Suddenly that mindset shifted, like, whoa, 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 this is too expensive. Yet on the flip side, when you looked at what they were doing for the football, it was different. Like they would be like, Oh yeah, that's there's no price, there's no price I won't pay for my kid to get a scholarship. Where you know, you almost kind of scratch your head at that because you look at it and be like, Okay, but you know, talent, just taking talent out of it, the measurables, like that kid's just not going to project to be a D1 athlete. Like genetically, it doesn't matter how hard you work. And I'm one of those kids. Like it doesn't matter how hard you work. You're just not going to get there. Like that's just science. It's science, biology, whatever you want to call it, where you could invest that kid in the rugby where he'd have a lifetime of inactivity, a lifetime of experiences that football just doesn't offer. But again, it's that mindset that, that commu- our community has. And our and I get guilty of it sometimes too, where I'll look at a development opportunity, but I'm not going to pay that. Yet I'll turn around and you know spend Amazon Prime Plus membership <laughs> prices on certain streaming My services. My biggest thing is I'm not going to fly a... When I is like my biggest thing is like some of these development opportunities. I, I remember I was trying to. There was a thing I had applied for, and I needed to be a two hundred level coach. That the requisition the requisition got cut, so it didn't matter. And uh, the most the fastest I could get uh, certified as a two hundred level USA, which is actually World Rugby Level One for everyone yeah. to know, um, World Rugby Level One coach. Was like I had to fly to oh man, and this is the only pro- this is the problem I have with our training and education department is that you know I guess there's this gatekeeping not from USA Rugby but from like World Rugby on how many educators we can have, and uh, it really makes it hard for people to take time off work to then have to fly to like New York or Indiana or DC or just somewhere else to go to a certification course. Um, and that's probably my only, my only beef when it comes to coach development is we can't, we're so small right now that we don't have enough development opportunities, whether it's for refs or coaches or administrators or anything. And, you know, and it is what it is, but investing like the plane flights, like paying for the courses, whatever it's the residuals of flight hotel, time to get to the course is where everything stacks up in general yeah but you know but but even then it like you know with the development aspect of it it's i don't believe that people people are you know i get the challenges like there's yes usa rugby is facing challenges admittedly so they've told us that they're facing challenges but development doesn't need to only happen at the USA oh, level, for sure. and, but again, like in that, in that, and that's where I think a lot of people get confused. And 
is that they're like, oh, well, I'm not going to need, I don't need to know how to do it. Well, you know, truth be told, some of the best things I've learned was, um, God, Eric Rudlin. Eric Rudlin is uh, a successful soccer coach, coaches a semi-pro team in Michigan, um, and started a combine uh, for, like, talent in the U.S. to be uh, scouted by international. I went and spent a week with that dude, had him on my podcast, talked with him, watched his event and everything. And I learned more about how to develop a professional tryout experience than I did anywhere else. So like, I think a lot of people need to understand that development inside of rugby is not development inside of rugby. Development is happens all around you. One of the best things I did for my development, as far as like developing understanding around how to uh, uh, get sponsors um, and people to invest in your in your organization was guess what sport I went and talked to. I'm serious. Guess what sport I went and talked to? Hmm. Football. No, no. A racing. Oh, Auto racing. Oh. Auto racing. Yeah. Because no. because guess what? Guess what has the most visibility per advertising dollars uh, to TV time? It's auto racing. Oh, yeah. So if they if they can teach, they, can, they should be able to teach us something about how to get sponsorship and how to calculate that. And and I learned a lot. And I learned a lot and I applied a lot and it worked. And, and again, it's like about development where people are just confused. And I, and I do believe that, you know, rugby has like these bumpers that are like, oh, no, we're not going to count that. We're not going to count that experience because it's not rugby. We're where I just wish more people would take the time to look at the development tools that are out there. Like a lot of, like I'm, I'm listening to, um, on my drive out here, I, I listened to the USFL. Uh, it's like football for a dollar book. It's hmm. the story of the USFL. Yeah, yeah. And you'd be surprised about, you'd be surprised about the parallels between that and the MLR. Um, but guess what? Those same lessons were learned in the MLS and in MLB and in the NFL and AFL and all this stuff where again, it's, it's the development tools are there, but because it doesn't have rugby associated with it, people, I think discredit them as, as a useful and viable development tool. I think, I think development, we're talking about development. I think one of the things that, uh, at the upper echelons of rugby, we see coaches go different places to learn different things from other sports. Um, specifically, you you see Eddie Jones come to the U.S. He goes to different baseball teams. He goes to different football teams. Yeah. But then we let's let's go back to you, Michigan, Jim Harbaugh in the spring. Um, just this, they do they do something different every year. Uh, but this last spring, they went down to South Africa and they did a training camp with the Springboks, um, an American football program. The site, like the the level that of spotlight Michigan is, just went down to go learn how to play rugby and just do something different. Yeah, and that's development in and of itself. And I think uh, you you talking about NASCAR, man. NASCAR is a crazy uh, development environment for management for uh commercial stuff mm-hmm. it's it's you know it's probably like when it comes to commercial they're the most professional uh environment when it comes to segmenting sponsorship uh, everything yeah yeah and yeah there's just so much to learn out there like there's so much to learn out there and like listen and and, and watch 
that I, I think we could all as a rugby community benefit from, from just watching and learning from a different sport that would make our sport so much more successful. So now um, you and the MLR, uh, yeah. uh, th this started actually uh, in season one. Um, basically, uh, you're, you, you smoke jumped into Seattle mid-season. Um, that's the best way. I mean, you finished your, your season with Michigan. Um, they didn't have a coach and they needed someone to, you know, to do a lot of the coaching stuff. Um, what was that like? Um, really, really challenging, but really, really rewarding. Uh, there was, you know, there was this challenges all over the place and, you know, when we got there, when we got there, we realized when we got there, we realized right away that the worst thing that we could do was try to take charge. So the best thing that we did was not, and we kind of went back and we went back and, and looked at uh, how we could just support what was currently there as that setup. And, and that's what we did. We just worked to improve everything one to 3% because if we knew we made those little improvements across the board, it, it would make a, a significant uh, a change for the team overall. So, so yeah, that's really what we did. Um, you know, Sean Pittman, there's a lot that Sean Pittman needs to be given credit for that he necessarily wasn't in the moment. Um, but yeah, we just worked to support that organization and improve things just a little bit. And, and obviously it worked out pretty well. And then take a step back, go back to Michigan, you know, uh, this last year, but before uh, now moving to, to Utah, uh, you finished your, your last season with Michigan and then we're going to focus. So how was that? And then you had originally planned to, to focus on legacy rugby full time. Um, what was your last season with Michigan like? And then what sort of led you down that path? Um, you know, like the last, the last season with Michigan uh, wasn't necessarily what I would want from a performance standpoint. Um, I believed at that point I had gotten that program as far as we could, you know, with starting a nonprofit with endowment increase with school interest with, you know, a lot of things that we did to, to, to make sure that rugby would be um, present even more so at the University of Michigan. Um, Performance-wise, we relied on a lot of really young players to do a lot of important things. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning that Big Ten ha is probably one of the most underutilized talent pools in America. Um, mainly because the Big Ten is essentially like an athletic Ivy conference. Uh, you know, that's, I stole that, I stole that from, I stole that from a football coach that said it. Uh, but, you know, like those younger players, you know, they struggled and they made a lot of mistakes. We try, and like, I tried to be as positive as I could with them as a coach. Um, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. There's things that I would have definitely have done differently, but I was still very proud of what the players accomplished and we as a coaching staff accomplished. Uh, it was also really rewarding to go back and watch their games this last season and see those young players that learned a lot of tough mistakes be really successful, uh, really successful 
in their juniors or their senior years. So I was really proud of that and been like, all right, good. Like we didn't waste that, that season. And like that season wasn't, wasn't awful. It was, we, I think we finished four and five, um, which that's the worst season that Michigan has had in the last almost 12 years. So it wasn't a great season, but it also wasn't an awful season. And we weren't blown out in very, we were only blown out really in one game. And that was the Ohio state game. Everything else was a, it was a try or less loss. Um, but once we wrapped up there, I started to shift my focus towards legacy and trying to build out legacies offerings. And when I saw that there was going to be a change at Utah, uh, I straight up, I straight up cold called, uh, I cold called <laughs> and, you know, like I put together a portfolio about who I was as a, as a coach and an administrator and as a rugby person in America. And, you know, I put it into a bottle, threw it into the ocean and hope for the best. Um, and, and luckily, luckily, you know, Kimball came back and he said, Hey, listen, you know, I, I liked what you sent me. There's a lot of, there's a lot of crossover with what we're trying to do here now, uh, and what your, and what you you've done and you're capable of doing, you know, like the main pillars of like family, community, tradition, and respect were all things that you've heard me talk about in this broadcast already. So the fact that I was able to use use my experience of creating environments including those four those four pillars of beliefs that was being looked for by uh an mlr uh owner and ceo and gm um was kind of a perfect storm uh which you know led me to here and led me in the position that i am in now where it's all about you know uh supporting the coaches the players and and in the community as a whole, which, you know, I take it very, very seriously because there's not a lot of other Americans in this position that I'm in here. And I feel personally and even professionally that my, that my purpose here should be to create opportunities for American players and American coaches to, to get at this level. Um, and, and, and have the opportunity that I have now where it becomes more of a regular occurrence and, and, in an American like myself, isn't an anomaly. So before we dig in further with the Warriors, uh, there was a question from the original set of questions I sent you. Um, and, and it focuses on the community college game because we're starting to see different programs. Uh, you know, Maricosta College, I think, is one of the younger ones. And then there's uh, Santa Rosa. I think community college has a rugby program. But this year, and I think it's ICC's fifth year of existence, Yeah, they won the at least the winter D1AA championship. What do you think, uh, you know, that kind of environment has to change if – the you know community colleges started adding rugby oh i mean so like from the school standpoint it gives them it gives them a sport that they can get involved in that has low overhead um but it also is a sport that has a big global imprint uh footprint which you know any college you know international international uh, exposure is always good uh, for the players, for the players and the game as a whole. Uh, I absolutely love it. And I would strongly encourage more players to go there and experience um, community college rugby. 
um, because of two reasons. Uh, one, if you play a sport in college, statistically, you're more likely to graduate with higher with higher grades, um, you know, better overall experience, so on and so forth. That's why rugby is so important uh, in college. And, and that's why you should play it. But it also will teach you a lot of things like because rugby is still very majority of a club sport. It's also going to teach you a lot of things that you're not going to get for playing a varsity sport around leadership, budget management, um, strategic marketing, strategic planning, all of those types of things. Uh, the other thing, which is huge, especially like with ICC, is its trade school component, um, which, you know, with my age, looking back on it, I think I would have, I think if I could do it over again, I would have probably studied a trade first before I went to college because I spent a lot of time and a lot of money wasted um, in things that I necessarily didn't care about or I didn't need. Uh, where I think if I would have gone and been like a welder, I would have put myself into a really good position career-wise, monetarily. And, and then I would have, as I matured as a human being, I could have gone back to college and experienced that, which, you know, speaking about that trade component, there's a lot of players that want to pursue the MLR. And there's also a lot of those same players also are going to graduate college and they don't know what they want to do, um, what, what they want to be when we grow up or what they want to be when they grow up. And, you know, if you go and get an associate in, in a trade, you guess what you're going to have no matter what happens with your rugby future. You will have a career that is always there, that is always in need of somebody to do what you know how to do. Um, so, like, yeah, if you if kids are like considering it and they want to do it, um, and they're not sure about what they want to be as in the future, I I think it's a great opportunity with these community college, especially if those tra- community colleges have trade programs, because like, you know, some of the richest people I know are plumbers. You know, some of the richest people I know are electricians. Like, you know. It, that's the truth. Like, that's just how it is. Um, you know, like in, and I just, I hope that there's more kids out there that, that maybe feel lost or misunderstood or they're, you know, they don't know what they want to be. That's okay. That they, they seriously consider going to a community college and getting an associates and then pursuing their rugby dreams until they get enough life experience to understand like, Hey, I want to be this when I grow up and then go to college. So, um, you know, your role with uh, the Utah Warriors, let's sort of what I guess, what is your role as defined um, to you before I start picking it apart and asking what I think you're supposed to be doing? (laughs) (laughs) So really, I mean, I'm going to kind of generalize my role here, but really my role is everything up to the field. Um which at that point, Chris and the coaches, they take over. And like, I've learned so much about rugby from just watching them. Um, but yeah, like my role is really supporting them in, in helping organize and create pathways and systems and processes that will support the overall success of the Utah Warriors, whether it be through our coaches or players, um, all of that. And I know it's a really general description but that's really what this role is it's very entrepreneur-esque um because it is very much a startup league and it's very much a startup situation for all of us and that's the truth of the bit so last season um when you were still you know doing michigan things and looking at maybe getting and just doing legacy rugby full-time uh the warriors announced a 
what I would say is the most comprehensive pathway program with the junior warriors program with the junior warriors academy then with the warriors select 15 all which encompassed be the men's premier division and then a focus on funneling in the collegiate rugby programs that are at BYU, Utah, and Utah Valley. Uh, I, I would suspect eventually into maybe a select sort of side to play in the summer. Um, and where you get your uh, college program kids and then you get your senior, your, your, your senior uh, club players into a system. If they so choose to compete for a slot on a practice squad and then maybe an MLR contract. Is that sort of, are you buttressing that plan and making it, um, or are you changing it? Um, and, or like I said, buttressing, making it into a real thing because we saw part of it with the Warriors selects playing a few games, uh, last, uh, last winter. Yeah. Um, but we haven't seen everything, but it was like on paper is the most comprehensive Academy pathway program into an MLR team. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, my, yeah, realistically it is to, it is to look at it and a keep it going, but, but find ways to improve it. Um, like that's, that's what I'm here to do. Um, you know, realistically, what really drew me to Utah was the local community is such a such a uh, hotbed for potential talent. Like there's there's guys playing rugby here that you just look at and you're like, holy cow! Like that 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 group or that athleticism that just doesn't exist like per capita anywhere else. Um, so I think like building out these pathways around like the Utah selects and the junior and the junior warriors those will go a long way to the success of the overall uh, team here at the top with the MLR. And yeah, my job is to, you know, support it, improve it, streamline it and make it better. It's a lot of tinkering. Uh, you know, what I said before about not wasting failure. Luckily I've tried a lot of these same things that were are in place here and failed, but I also was successful with them. And now it's just kind of taking those lessons putting them into play action here, creating some more mistakes and improving on those mistakes to eventually creating a, a sustainable pathway for players and not just players, but also coaches. Uh, I mean, that's what a, a director of rugby, I, I think someone talked to, told me about it. I was like, so directors of rugby, I think directors of rugby in the U, in Europe have a lot on their plate and you probably have a lot on your plate on what you have to do. But one of the things is if they're a head coach, it, it it puts extra on their plate, but as a director of rugby operations, your job, you talked about development. So when the season ends at some point, you're going to have to create a professional, a professional development program so that your coaches continue to progress. Correct. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know, like our coaches here, but also like finding coaches that, are worth investing in and creating that we can help be successful in whatever their ambitions are. Um, so yeah, it's a lot about once the season ends, it, there is going to be a lot of developmental focus and there's, you know, the truth of the matter is there's just things that I don't know. And I don't know what the best way forward is yet, 
but I know that there's people out there that do know. And I've spent a lot of time looking at like what USA soccer is doing around their education. I've looked at like uh, cricket, lacrosse, um, all of these different programs that seem to have developed a pretty pretty good pathway for their coaches. And, and I want to try to build something similar to that here as so it's successful. Um, so it's successful. So we're producing talent and there's people that want to come to Utah and be a part of it. So we've looked at, uh, I guess, a few 50 meter targets, maybe a few hundred meter targets, but what is a five meter target? What are, what are you doing day to day? What is your battle rhythm like right now? We are, in pre- <laughs> we are in preseason. You texted me and you were like, we got to do some physicals today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like a lot of my five meter things is like, a practicing our beliefs around the family, you know, the community, the tradition and the respect. Um, so like practicing those things it is, and then creating things in place that will help be successful for the team. Like, you know, family and community was one thing real big where, you know, Kimball, Kimball and I had the idea for a Christmas party all that stuff which you know again like that's community and family um you know people are like oh what does santa have to do what does santa have to do with rugby uh well he does have a lot to do because bo schembechler famous michigan football coach said you know once it's about the team the team the team and when i'm on this day-to-day thing i need to be doing things daily that show that I'm creating something that will support and demonstrate that we care for the team, which is the actual team on the field. You know, the second team, which is the team behind the team. So families and support systems that, that help these athletes be successful. And then the third team, which is us, like us as the administrators, the coaches, the front office, the biz ops, all of that stuff. So like a lot of that is just looking at things right now in preseason and be like, right, how can we do this better? Where can we do this better? What should we be doing better? You know, more of this, less of that. In in just, you know, creating an environment that people want to come and be a part of daily, but also on the outside looking and be like, ooh, if I go somewhere, I want to go there. Um, so, yeah, I'm purposely being vague at the moment, but I'm purposely being vague at the moment, but that's kind of uh, what I'm doing at a higher, at a 10 meter level. So, and then you talked about everything up to the field. So I guess to, to get a little bit more minute is like, how do you support the coaches and the players um, so that they get ready for training and all that stuff? So to give you an example, I was with some players today. We were doing some administrative work and, I I went and I said, hey, what's your guys' goal? You're like, what's your goal from being here at Utah? And, like, they tell me those goals, and then I turn around, I put in my notebook what that goal is. And then, you know, the second question I ask that player is, how can I support you in that? As a director of rugby, what can I do to help you? Um, and, you know, sometimes those goals will expand off of rugby, like, oh, professionally I want to do this or that. And then I look for tools and ways that we can help them be successful. Same thing with the with the coaches staff. Um, you know, I see those guys daily, and or I text them daily, or I'm in contact with them at all times in some way or another. And I ask them, like one of the questions I always make sure I ask is like, "What can I do to help you? 
Like, what can I do to make this successful? You know, like, we'll give you an example. Like, the medical team, one thing that they really wanted was foam rollers. So we went out and got some really good, high-grade foam rollers. And guess what? Like, you're now, now you're seeing them be able to do things that will hopefully head off injuries long-term for us. So like, it, I wish I could tell you it was something really cool and really fancy and shiny, but honestly foam rollers yeah foam rollers your your players are going to hate you now yeah 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 but you know at the same time like (laughs) you know there there is there you know there is you know there there are things like that we're doing like around gps technology and performance tracking and all that stuff that will help make the coach's job easier and educating those coaches on how to use those tools and you know you know helping maybe some of our more um inexperienced coaches like talk to other coaches that have the experience that they need so it's just finding those things in in creating like creating a roadmap for the players and the coaches to accomplish them what they want to accomplish and like you know if you notice what i said was like you know there's long-term goals there for each coach but at the same time there's also a lot of short-term stuff there you heard me say like i asked them what their goal is or how can i help them you know and Sometimes it's something like a foam roller. Other times it's like, hey, help me move that table. So, yeah, it's just trying to be there and and be a resource because those little actions eventually snowball into big actions. And, you know, we're all still very much in a get-to-know-each-other phase. And, you know, you're only going to see things get better and ramp up and improve and, and just become newer and shinier and cooler and exciting the more we get to work together and the more we learn each other's, you know, shorthand and our rhythms. Hmm. I'm being vague. <laughs> so uh, you guys have, uh, you know, you know uh, I think it's two preseason games. Correct? Is that correct? Or is it one? Yeah, who, yeah two. So who, um, let's see, I should know this. Who are you playing? Gonna, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, You're the interviewer. Oh, oh I got to. Yeah. Uh, you know, I should know offhand yeah. <laughs> exactly who you're playing because yeah. I, I saw it today. But, um, you know, we, we've seen different things when it comes to preseason models. I, I would say there, there was a really bad one that uh, we're not um, – that was in season one by a certain team in Texas, <laughs> but uh, now we're seeing sort of, I, I would say something pretty standard. Uh, so you guys are going to Vegas on yeah. the 18th is what I see in front of me. And then, huh? Yeah. You know, you know, that's all I got. Only one game. Is it, are you guys playing two games or are you guys playing one? We're, we're just playing San Diego. So we'll do the Vegas one in San Diego. Um, okay. So, uh, the arrows and San Diego for preseason. So is that, is that correct? I guess like a whole week, but yeah, there will be a scrimmage there with the arrows. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so pretty much every team this year, it's like when it comes to uh, a standard uh, sort of prep is it's about two games for everyone. Um, The most is three. And we're not talking of those of the team that's playing three. They're not playing two MLR teams. They're playing, you know, one. So um, what do you think that is like versus um, I think uh, I think Seattle had like a close scrimmage. Uh, in season one, apparently it worked out because they, they, they won the championship twice, but uh, 
what we saw was, I guess, in Houston, they played, I was talking to somebody else, they played 16 games. Yeah. Before they played an MLR fixture in season one, it didn't work, obviously. But now we have sort of more like an NFL-ish setup. I, I always look at the NFL as a model. Um, people yeah. hate me. P- people hate me when I talk about the NFL as a model, but I think it is a very good model. Um, but uh, we're, we're seeing two games. Um, is that um, about where you guys think you need to be? Uh, roughly seven weeks of preseason and two games before you hit uh, opening day. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, re- I really do think so. I think it's. I think that's a better question for co- for Chris. Um, for me, from like a director of rugby position, you know, it, <clears throat> I think two two is good because it, it knocks it knocks the the game rust off of players, but it also allows for um, you to you to kind of get out there and develop some things and see who's going to work together in best realm. Um, with lineups and all of that, you know, really, the, you, what we're looking at is there is, you know, I think we we looked at the numbers and there's 20 players gone from last year, which, you know, that's still going to keep our, our top side, our top performance side a little bit smaller, which is fine. So realistically, we only need two games to really kind of vet out what we have in the cover, but also then see what we else can go out and get neat. So, yeah, about two games I think is good. Um you know, just operationally and, and performance-wise. So, as we sort of get out of here uh, for the e- for the evening, because it's no longer the afternoon, um, and you've talked about development, you talked about goals. So, what is um, one of your goals? Not your top goals, but one of your goals uh, to complete during this season in this new role. Uh, I mean, this season, my my main goal, like my main goal, is to help support this coaching staff and these players uh, so they're competitive. And there's an immediate improvement on what happened last season. Uh, you know, inside of that goal, uh, what that looks like is just making sure that we're having resources and I'm finding creative solutions to, to get the coaches and the players what they need, whether it be nutrition, whether it be, uh, you know, some kind of workout equipment or recovery equipment or, or those types of things. Uh, you know, the, the reality of the situation is, is I am coming in a little late to this position. Um, so like my immediate impact might not be as great as I would like it to be. Um, but there's still some, some, you know, low hanging fruit that would be easy to, to, to take care of. Um, you know, and, and a lot of that is just looking at things operationally to make sure that there, you know, to make sure that there's less downtime at the airport. So there's more, more time in bed or relaxing uh, like those types of things, those little operational things that will go a long way to help with on-field performance. All right. Uh, Sparksy, thanks for uh, the afternoon um, and look forward to chatting with you uh, throughout the season and good luck. Thanks, man. Excited to be here. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online we're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>